This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we're here today with Dr. Zachary Fry. Dr. Fry, welcome. Thank you. And also with us is Dr. Bill Nance. Welcome. And we're here today with uh, Dr. Fry, who's an associate professor at one of our satellite campuses at Fort Belvoir, to talk about um, a, a lot of um, sites he's proximate to, and we'll talk about the, the importance of battlefields in military history and military history teaching. Um, so let's start off with a very dumb, but also very, uh, hopefully, insightful question, which is, what is a battlefield? What is a battlefield? That is a good question. Um, well, uh, a battlefield is, for a military historian is, is a place where something very, very significant has happened in which um, soldiers have fought, soldiers have, have died, um, something has been decided or not. Um, and in the case of many of the Civil War battlefields, which I am proximate to, as you mentioned, um, there's been some effort to preserve that site and either through the National Park Service or some other um, some other uh, institution or organization to interpret what happened there in a way that makes its meaning um, relevant for uh, visitors, who in the case of Civil War battlefields usually is the American public. Um, so that would be my quick and dirty definition of a battlefield, but um, perhaps that's uh, perhaps that's insufficient uh, because there's it's a it's a term that's freighted with meaning. Well, and I, I want to direct the question as well to Dr. Nance, who is, uh, in addition to being a military historian, is also a uh, combat veteran. So, how would you answer that question, Dr. Nance? Uh, I'll start at the same place uh, Dr. Fry said, but a battlefield is where people fought. Uh, I, I'll be even more general than that because typically when we think of battlefield, you think of Gettysburg, Antietam. But I'm a, also mainly a World War II historian, and you start talking about the Battle of the Bulge. Well, the battlefield encompassed a huge part of Belgium, Luxembourg, parts of Germany. Uh, so it gets very hard to sit there and say this was a battlefield, uh, particularly when you do this huge swath of territory. So, or, for example, the, the spring crossings of the Rhine. I mean, it's basically the length of the Rhine, mm -hmm. right? Right. And, and so what you end up with is, is that you have to make a decision as to what you're going to talk about. So, for instance, we use the popular memory. When people go to the Battle of the Bulge, uh, go to the Battle of the Bulge, they go to Bastogne and they look at Easy Company's uh, foxholes, and that is a battlefield to them, uh, or a town. And it's interesting to me what cho people choose to memorialize and what they don't, because a battlefield can be exceptionally tiny. Uh, my, some of my own personal experiences, it's literally a street. In where Russell, you, correct? Second? In Mosul? Yes, in Mosul. Uh, yeah, where it was, no kidding, just a guy decided to open up from a window and we spent the next three hours chasing him. And uh, that was a little battlefield. It was a space, I mean, less than a football field. That's a battlefield. 
no one's going to put up a memorial there and talk about the great battle of Captain Nance chasing the sniper, though. Hey, you never uh, know. More than likely not. So that's what. So I think uh, what we're also kind of getting at is what we choose to memorialize too, because right, right. there's a battlefield in the tense in the military sense of people fought here, but there's a battlefield in the memory sense of right. we choose to set this place off. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think you may, you both raise an important distinction, which is you know we we kind of operate on two levels. The one level is the level of reality. These facts occurred at this location. Sometimes those are not very sure. Um, if you get the further you go back in the past, the you know the more vague they can be. But then there's also this level of memory, and and we might even call that the level of myth, right? Mm-hmm. That that there can be factual truths, but there's a truth that perhaps is higher, and that's that's how the battlefield is remembered, whether that's rooted in fact or not. Um, so and let's let's continue through with one kind of more definition. So in America, and obviously this is not true in many cases outside of America, mm-hmm. but in America, when we say battlefield, we are generally thinking of kind of one of two things, right? We're thinking of a space that may not be in any way public. It may be on someone's farm. Yeah. But what we really tend to think of is kind of the national park owned yeah. walking trails, driving trails, right. signs, um, so what's the difference between those two besides the obvious? One of them is curated, one of them is not. The kind of the, the private space that might be owned privately and not accessible versus the public space that can sometimes be more about the public than it is about the history. Well, it's a difference of interpretation, certainly. Um, if you're talking about a national or a state park, I mean, the majority of Civil War battlefields, the, the big battlefields are certainly owned and and curated by the National Park Service, but um, many smaller battlefields are, in fact, um, owned and operated by um, uh, by individual states um, and historical commissions and so forth, and a number of them are still in private hands. Um, I think, personally, it must be very strange to be a farmer in Virginia knowing that a uh, you know, knowing that a battle unfolded on your property, which is essentially impossible in Northern Virginia, correct? I mean, you're you're well, always going to be near in, a battlefield. Well, it, it, what is certainly the case in Northern Virginia is that um, this gets into a, a a very important and pressing issue for Civil War historians, which is that of battlefield preservation. Um, Increasingly in Northern Virginia, it's more and more difficult to find green space. Um, so much so that a place like Manassas is, it, which I frequent um, every other weekend, it seems, um, just to sort of enjoy um, more and more um, particular, specific, and arcane parts of the battlefield. Um, it's predominantly a recreation space, um, and that that sense of recreation is is, I think, a very important dynamic that plays out when we consider battlefields um, because the, the American public, when they visit a place like Gettysburg or Antietam or, or Shiloh, um, they don't necessarily go there. They don't necessarily go there wanting to be saddened, although that can be a dynamic. They don't, they don't go there necessarily wanting to be... Um, uh, 
angered or or in any way you know dejected coming away from there they want to be inspired and they want to enjoy themselves yeah this is kind of the the matthew brady photograph of ward yeah. versus the you know the, the the swelling strains of the soundtrack of the movie gettysburg as a for instance so like um i had a the opportunity to take some west point cadets to normandy oh my and uh that was of course a great experience I'm sure it was. and uh one of my uh my boss at the time, and a uh, guy by the name of uh, Colonel John Gentile. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, and what he uh, mentioned it, when we saw people out walking on the beaches, just having a good time out on Omaha Beach, he said, that's victory. Yeah. Young couples out doing yeah. normal, everyday activity where some of the most hideous slaughter took place. And isn't that what we were fighting for, that people could walk and do that? And I know I, it kind of spoke to me at that particular moment in time. But one thing, I want to get back to something you were talking about, like some of the more esoteric sides of the mm-hmm. Battle of Manassas. So as we're trying to bound this battlefield, right, what, what gets saved? Is it the place where Stonewall Jackson held the line, or is it the place where the trains of the Army of the Potomac were and where they routed and uh, it caused a big problem? What What would generally get saved. Well, that's largely an issue of what becomes available um, for purchase initially, ba- you know, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Whatever the federal government at the time, the War Department, um, had the ability to to purchase. But the priority, of course, was placed on those spots where uh, the bulk of the fighting happened. And I think if you look at the creation of battlefield parks, again, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you see that um, the federal government is, with the, with, with the possible exception of, of Chickamauga, which becomes a battlefield park very early, uh, the United States government is interested in battlefields where the Union Army acquitted its, where I should say the United States Army acquitted itself very well, um, like Gettysburg, for instance. Um, so that's largely what gets saved. Um, in the case of all the battlefields around Fredericksburg and all the battlefields around Richmond, Virginia, um, those get developed, you know, very rapidly in the mid-20th century. Um, as in the case of Fredericksburg, it sort of comes into commuting distance from D.C. and so forth. And um, and these landscapes, which had always been presumed would be green space, you know, for for all time, suddenly get dug up and bulldozed over um, for housing developments and everything. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much about emphasizing the places where the, the carnage unfolded in its, in its most um, dramatic fashion that could be interpreted for the public. It's also the case in, the, in um, the instance of a place like Gettysburg where individual um, citizens of the town come together in the months right after the battle and start figuring out at least how to memorialize parts of the battlefield, if not buy it outright with an independent organization that can then be deeded over to the War Department eventually. And even individual Union veterans come back and purchase plots of land. Now, you're hitting on something that's interesting to me, and it's actually been digging, uh, kind of picking at my brain here a minute. Which is, okay, Civil War, it's very easy. The angle at, uh, or the, the copes of trees mm-hmm. at Gettysburg. 
We all know where that's at. That has been firmly fixed in popular imagination. Where was the flank at the cornfield? That gets a lot harder. Mm. Because in a fight, it's very, very hard to know where you are at every moment in time. In the modern army, it's a little bit easier because I can pull out a GPS and I can call up a grid and I can go back and into the records and pull up that grid and I can point on a map and say, I was right here when I made that report. At least I thought I was, uh, if I'm not confused. But, so we know the big names, right? Like the, the Copes of Trees, mm. uh, the uh, Bloody Lane. Those are easy. Mm. But what about those other equally important points on in Civil War battlefields, but they were in the middle of a field or in a set of trees? How are they, how would we kind of put our finger on a map and say it was here? Well, it's very difficult. And... Um there's been a lot of great scholarly work looking at the at the, those difficulties um, because it's you're, you're dealing in the case of Civil War combat, perhaps this is true universally, um, where the combat was you know, absolutely frantic, um, oftentimes very ill-organized, oftentimes during the American Civil War, um, the ability to move and maneuver large bodies of troops um, wasn't quite what it would be, let's say, on the Napoleonic battlefield during the American Civil War. The primary um, unit of uh, the primary unit that that moved tactically on the Civil War battlefield was the brigade. Um, so it became very difficult to see what was going on on the Civil War battlefield, and, and therefore relatively difficult to articulate afterward what happened on the Civil War battlefield great article by Carol Reardon looks at this, just the tremendous challenges of trying to parse through Civil War soldiers' accounts because the nature of Civil War battlefields in particular was so fluid, dynamic, and ill-organized. Yeah, and I I think it's also worth pointing out, um, when it comes to the history side, there's a problem, which is, on the one hand, many reports are written long after the events occurred. Two, the, the accounts are not necessarily believable, whether mm-hmm. by accident or by malice. Mm-hmm. And three, sometimes by the time those accounts are written, the battlefields have changed, right? So if we're talking about a stone wall, and, and you know, there's an infamous stone wall at Fredericksburg, that wall is still there. But it's entirely possible that wall would have been torn down a year after the battle, and mm-hmm. we wouldn't have that landmark, Right. So, so there's, there, there are many difficulties connecting the history, the recorded history, true or not, to the physical space. And, and I want to continue down this line of talking about the physical space. So you, you, keep, you keep talking about interpreting, and I want to dive mm-hmm. into that a little bit. So we have a, we have a space. Whatever our battlefield is, we probably not use the term battle space, but whatever the battlefield is, there is a physical space somewhere where something happened. Let's say, in the case of a state or national park, okay, that land is now publicly owned. Presumably it's fenced, but we still just have a space. So how do we turn that into a battlefield that kind of the typical you know, non-history podcast listening American would recognize as a battlefield? What's, what, what do we do to go from empty space to interpreted? Heavily manicured, you know, monumented. Yeah. Um, well, in the case of... Um, some of the battlefields we've been discussing, it begins, of course, with that that process that I mentioned where the land is actually you know, bought up. The land is then 
turned over to some authority which can um, which can commemorate what happened there which brings up all sorts of complex issues how do we commemorate and by we you know who who what do I mean by we are we talking about soldiers are we talking about um, because there were wartime monuments erected during the Civil War. Uh, there's a famous one at Stones River. Um, are we talking about veterans? Are we talking about veterans decades after the fact coming back? Um, sort of after the, the a particular interpretation of a battle's meaning has really congealed? Um, or are we talking about um, some public history organization um, perhaps in the in in the present, who's looking back with a completely different set of priorities and meaning. So um, much of it depends, I think, on monumentation. Not to say that all Civil War battlefields or all battlefields in general are heavily monumented, but a number of very important Civil War battlefields are. Listeners know them: Gettysburg, Antietam, Shiloh, Chickamauga, and so forth. Um, so a lot of it begins with monumentation. Um, and ends ultimately in some sort of public history responsibility um, for interpreting the meaning of what happened there through narrative tablets, um, through interpretational tours by rangers and licensed battlefield guides. In the case of Gettysburg, people whose job it is literally to know as much about what happened at that particular battlefield or on that particular in that particular space as possible um, and interpret it in a way that's meaningful for the public. So from a physical standpoint it starts I think with monumentation or some other some other physical manifestation of remembering what happened on this particular spot. Which which will necessarily also create the movement, right? So mm -hmm. one of the things I think that that perhaps we don't take notice of but is very much a part of the battlefield experience is how movement is curated whether mm. it's curated by the public by building walking paths yeah. or more often by building concrete paths yeah. so how do you decide how to progress people through a battlefield to where they can understand the interpretation well, that's a good question. It's a it's a it's a question I'm sure that vexes a lot of public historians and and National Park Service historians as they um, consider all the dynamics at play in interpretation. It's a question that interests me um, because I often take students on staff rides and um, tours and battle walks and so forth as we investigate an action. And so, it's important to um, it's important to interpret. It's important to present this incredibly chaotic experience, this fluid combat experience in a way that is understandable and digestible, even to military professionals who understand intuitively the chaotic nature of combat. It's important to interpret it in a almost a logical fashion if you want them to get some, some meaning from it that can help them in, let's say, their appreciation for the profession of arms or for the complexities of field grade command, whatever. Um, so it's important to develop some sort of uh, some sort of logical flow. Yeah, and it's a challenge. Yeah, let's let's talk about one of the significant challenges of the conflict you study in, in commemoration versus interpretation, which which mm -hmm. I imagine that's that's less of a line and more of a Venn diagram. <laughs> um, 
this is a war in which both sides were American. And it's a war that still has uh, very strong social dividing lines. So how does a given, um, let's call it National Park Service Committee versus the states, because we kind of know mm. how the states are going to do mm. it. How does a federal government body decide how it's going to commemorate Confederates? Um, well, that's an issue that I think has, has changed a lot over time. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm not privy to a lot of the conversations and processes that, that you know, public historians would go through. Let me, let me ask it in a more, um, probably a, bit, a more useful way. How, it's a good how question. How do you think it should be done? How do I think it should be done? Um, well, I think it's something that needs to be done utilizing a lot of the um, rich, and this isn't, I'm not saying this to be self-serving in any respect, but something that should, something that should be done utilizing um, the experience, the the expertise of scholars who devoted their lives to studying this topic. And you're right, in the case of, of national parks, um, that, that sort of commemoration um, slash interpretation line um, needs to be walked delicately, perhaps because the audience is the American people, which is itself an incredibly diverse spread of potential clients at a park. Um, you know, for my purposes as a professional military educator, um, that line between commemoration and interpretation is kind of an academic one. Like, I, I take students to a battlefield, and I can, I can use a monument or um, some other physical um, landmark or something like that as um, a conversation starter. But I'm looking at, let's say, Stonewall Jackson's statue on Henry Hill at the Manassas National Battlefield Park, and I can ask students, all right, what does this, what does this monument tell us about not just the Civil War, but how generations for decades afterward chose to remember the Civil War? Um, because, and, and if you're, if, if the listeners, you know, aren't familiar with the statue, Google the statue. Jackson literally looks like a superhero. He has a cape. His horse looks ridiculous. Um, this statue is an example of the sort of mindset that white Southerners in the 1930s, 1940s, um, wanted to present about the Confederate cause. The issue is, that monument is now almost 100 years old. It itself is it's history. Is history. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a tremendous difficulty from an interpretation and and sort of public history standpoint, I'm sure, in, with respect to like taking down such a statue. So as an educator and a historian and a professional military educator, I should say, you were, you're kind of hitting on a couple different things. There's the actual thing, the event itself, right? Yeah. And then there's the commemoration, memorialization of it, yeah. and they're not the same thing. Oftentimes, they're not. So yeah. how do you uh, so how do you go about helping your students kind of unpack one from the other? Because uh, military uh, military students in general that like military history, they they've read extensively, and some of them are good. Some of the books they've read are good, and some of them are perhaps less useful. Yeah. So how do you help them kind of unpack kind of the myth from the reality? I think it begins um, 
with an understanding that in many res- in, in many cases, monuments on Civil War battlefields are erected by veterans, dedicated by veterans, and it can be very useful to use monuments as um, as sort of physical objects in an outdoor classroom where you can let's say parse through you know what did a what 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 did these union veterans think about the war they were fighting you know look at the imagery on the monument um, and these are very academic issues but the students I get tend to find that sort of sort of inspiring they tend to find that engaging and it gets to some of the more fundamental issues you brought up about the differences between history and memory in a, a, a really immediate way so and I'll, I'll throw this to, to dr. Nance too when you take a student on a battlefield or a group of students or, or dr. Nance in your case you know a retired um, US Army officer combat veteran when you stand on a battlefield what are you hoping they get from being in the physical space that they wouldn't get from being in a classroom or now even being in a virtual reality version of the battlefield? Yeah. What is the physical space worth? Well, for me, um, it's worth hopefully inspiring the students more than we would be able to in a classroom. Um, I, I find that there's something about standing on the ground that is um, just ineffable. It's just it's it's one of those things that students enjoy, or at least students find inspiring, that can't be replicated um, in a classroom with with fluorescent lighting and and you know formica tables and so forth. It just it just can't really um, be done and. Not all battlefields are created equal. I mean, if you stand, for instance, at the angle at Gettysburg, you're having a very different experience from standing in the median of Route 3 at Chancellorsville, where Stonewall Jackson's flank attack, you know, climaxed on the afternoon of May 2nd, 1863, because that battlefield is not nearly as well preserved as it could have been. Um, So you have to sort of recognize that. Um, So ideally, when I take students out on a battlefield, I'm looking for a battlefield that is relatively easy to um, to visit and recognize that something obviously important and meaningful happened here according to the preservation of the landscape and the extent to which the veterans and generations after them um, the steps that they've taken to memorialize and interpret what happened there and from the professional te- uh, from the professional side of things you're also a professional but military a different sort of professional mil- yeah, yeah. military from the military side is we do that, but uh, what I also am after for the for the officers a little bit is to gain an appreciation that you can't, as you said, you can't get that appreciation in a classroom, where they can sit there on the hill and suddenly, when you're at the angle at Gettysburg, which we'll keep using, mm-hmm. you can look down the slope and realize the fields of fire, and it, it just it viscerally connects. You don't even have to say anything. You go, we're oh, yeah. here, yeah. we're there, and all of a sudden you go, I get it. Yeah. And or you flip that around and you stand at the wood line, which uh, the Gettysburg uh, Field Commi- Battlefield Commission has done a superb job mm-hmm. at even putting the tree lines back where they were. Yeah. Um, you stand at that edge of the tree line and you look up and I get it. And what I've what I also try and do with a lot of students too is I'll try and put them 
into the very claustrophobic nature of a fight. When we went to Normandy, as a for instance, and you take them into a hedgerow, and you, you show them just, well, it's like when we look at it on a map, you go, oh, well, they can move here and they can move here. And when you play war games, you stand can, in the sunken road and it's six feet high walls and you're four feet below ground level. Right, and you sit there and you go, when you're when you're playing a war game or something like that, you go, oh, I'll just move my shit over here, and I see this minus one movement, right, and the, and off I go. Whereas when they sit there and they and they suddenly viscerally understand the problems, because they they know because they've been trained on how to fight over this ground, and then you say here are the problems they were facing, and they've done the reading, they go, oh, and they get it. Uh, one of the best teaching moments I had. And it was a. We were out on Omaha Beach, and the tide had gone all the way out. I'm really jealous of all these Omaha Beach references, too. Oh, uh, it is a spectacular time. And, and we actually, for those of you who are not familiar with it, the the tidal range in the channel is is large. It's, yeah. There's a huge expanse of sand exposed when the tide goes out. So when we when we showed up in the morning, the tide was coming in, and it was coming in so fast that Colonel Gentile had his back to the to the tide. And I'm sitting there as the young major, watching the colonel talk, and uh, having to time the moment to, sir, we need to move or you're going to be underwater. <laughs> it was coming in that fast. Yeah. And then in the afternoon, when it had gone, and the students saw just how fast the tide was coming in, because that was the tactical problem at Omaha Beach. You landed at low tide, and then the tide is coming in behind you. And the students immediately saw that and went, oh. And then in the afternoon, when the tide had gone all the way out, then we walked all the way out to the edge of the water where the landing craft had actually landed. And then they and then we stood out and it was a good three, four hundred meters. And the other thing you wow. do when you when you stand on the beach at, at um, Omaha is you turn around and yeah, there's a big tidal range and there's a beach and then there's a set of cliffs. Yeah. And then you're sitting there, and uh, a student was sitting there, and it was, and I the nice thing about West Point cadets is they're all young and tip top shape. One of the one of the one of the cadets was a firsty, a senior, decided that he was going to run. He was just going to sprint all the way from the water line, all the way to the uh, edge of the bluff. Just like in the bluffs. longest day. Exactly. Just like in the longest. Just day. because you know nothing happened. That's exactly He's, how it happened. And he sprinted all the way in, and then he, and then we, you know, being the slightly older major, I walked in, uh, and we got there, and he was huffing. He was still huffing and puffing by the time we got there, and it took us a good ten minutes to get there, and he's like. And they did that with combat pack under fire, mm-hmm. and the, it it connects with the students in a way that doesn't do that. So Zach, I'm going to kick it back over to you here, r- really quick. So, as an educator, as you're going, as you're getting these students coming out there, mm-hmm. how do you prep these students for going to the battlefield? Is this just something you show up to do, or how do you how do you kind of well, get them ready for it? Well, it? It, it it can be. Although in that case, and this is something I I played around with a lot during COVID. Um, when I was teaching virtually, as, as you guys were here as well, for, uh, to some extent, per- perhaps not as long as we were at, at Fort Belvoir, but um, the, the students in that case had never really met in person before. Um, so actually going out to a battlefield in Northern Virginia and spending a day with each other was a great way to actually physically meet each other. So um, in that case, and it was always done on the weekends, it was always on their own time. Um, in that case, it may have been less formal than um, what what other professional military educators might consider a true staff ride, which includes the preparation phase. 
um, oftentimes where students are getting together for a number of hours beforehand in the classroom going over what happened so that there are no surprises when you go on the battlefield. Oh, you know, John Pope's army loses at Second Manassas. I didn't see that coming. Spoilers. Um, yeah, so so there's some preparation that, that goes into it ideally. Um, students understand not just who the major figures are, if you're choosing to role play them, although I usually I usually don't do that, um, but also how these armies, in the case of the American Civil War, functioned, which is oftentimes vastly different from how students come in thinking they should have functioned. These are armies, you know, uh, dinosaurs with bird brains is, is the image that's often presented. Tremendous amount of destructive power, but with no real discernible general staff like we would think of it. So, so it's a very different... Army, why wasn't the Union Army low crawling through the cornfield at the... Right, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And why did they why did they march and fight in these stupid double rank, you know, line formations, of course. Uh, but these are, of course, questions that we've teased out already in H100. Um, by the time we get to the staff ride um, opportunity, so students generally understand the mechanics of a 19th century battlefield. By the time they visit the battlefield, they understand how the armies move, how the armies fight, how the armies are subsisted, um, all of these sorts of things. So there's some amount of preparation that goes that goes on beforehand. Um, much of that preparation, from from my perspective, I try to craft at the operational level. Um, and that's, I think, really important for CGSC students in particular. You know, we're crafting staff officers who can think and function at the operational level. Um, and so it's important to consider that when you go on a battlefield. Now, does that mean I'm not going to talk about the, the absolutely dramatic combat that unfolded at the Bronner Farm on the, after, on the evening of August 28, 1862 at 2nd Manassas with the Iron Brigade fighting the Stonewall Brigade at like 50, 50 yards apart at sunset? Absolutely, I'm going to talk about that. The students expect it and have a right to expect to hear about stuff like that when they're on the battlefield. But you just sort of have to be attuned to the fact that this is nonetheless an educational experience which requires some preparation beforehand. So you're actually kind of hinting at that there's actually some pitfalls that you can do on a battlefield, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When you when you're uh, as an educator, you can take a bunch of students out onto the battlefield, and perhaps you can actually create more educate more problems for yourself. Can you could you, could you talk through some of that? Uh, sure. I think there is. I'll, I'll speak to one that I've encountered um, a lot on Civil War battlefields. And it's a, sense, it, it's, a, it's a propensity we have, I think, as military historians to caricature commanders um, to the extent that we sort of abdicate analysis. In other words, sort of going back to John Pope at Second Manassas, how in the world could he have been so close-minded, so, so um, just absolutely um, immune to reality? and making such abysmal decisions on the battlefield. He must have been an absolute idiot. And when you say this general or that general was an idiot or this commander or that commander was an idiot, you really do abdicate analysis, I think. Um, and it, it, it allows you to sort of dismiss that person as a caricature. And I think we do this as well with commanders like George McClellan, um, simply saying, oh, you know, he was an idiot or he was, you know, he was... Um, a coward or something like that, when the reality is far more complex, far richer, 
um, for discussion, I think, and visiting a battlefield and, and, and talking about those complexities allows you to sort of tease out the, the meaning and the significance of it. So uh, battlefields, of course, are a very important teaching tool. Um, let's let's talk about more of the professional personal side. Yeah. What do you gain from visiting a battlefield that you've read about? Um, well, I, it, first and foremost, I think I gain an understanding of the ground, um, which is perhaps the obvious, but it's it's true. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I was I was in seventh grade, I think. So however old you are in seventh grade, and I visited Antietam for the first time. And I'd read plenty about Antietam, you know, like most Civil War historians, I got interested in the Civil War when, you know, when I was practically crawling. Um, it, most military historians, perhaps you gentlemen are, are like this, grew out of the Civil War um, and moved on to other, other topics. I never did. Um, and so having read about Antietam for a number of years before actually visiting it, I was floored when I got there at how vastly different the topography was from how I imagined it. I thought, for instance, when I went to Antietam, that it was going to be remarkably flat, that you could stand at the cornfield and, and see Bloody Lane, and you know you could stand at Bloody Lane and see Burnside's Bridge and everything. And the reality is, it's, it's I mean, it, it, you're dealing with, with uh, hills that go up and down and up and down and up and down. It's exhausting to, to actually traverse the battlefield. So that in and of itself changed my entire view of the action changed my entire assessment such as it existed in my seventh grade mind of what generalship actually required at a place like Antietam so the appreciation for the ground I think is first and foremost yeah we call it micro terrain right the yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. That yeah it doesn't show up yeah. on a map an IV line that you might not appreciate and until you go there yeah uh, and uh, what got me is a two in Antietam which is one of my favorite Civil War battlefields Bloody lane, uh, where bloody lane, where you have that IV line, where all of a sudden you're invisible and you're yeah. invisible, and then all of a sudden you're not. Yeah, and and that, that's where the engagement range is. Then yeah, yeah, I, I've had a similar experience. Although I, I would, uh, I'd push it back against something you said earlier. Uh, mine was Fredericksburg. Yeah, when, when I was in high school and standing at the bottom of Mary's Heights and looking up and thinking, man, Burnside was an idiot. <laughs> but but that's the that's the that's the challenge we have. I think it's not necessarily to excuse what they did. In the case of Ambrose Burnside or, again, John Pope or George McClellan, seem to be listing off a number of Union generals. As a historian yeah, of the we'll, Union Army, we'll, I apologize we'll for that. But <laughs> Okay, sure, sure, sure. sure. We can get Brax and Bragg. Let's bring some John Bell Hood into it yeah, in yeah. late November, early December 1864 um, because I stood there as well and thought, oh, my God, John Bell Hood. Um, what was he on? And then you realize it. Um, but with respect to sort of guys like Burnside and McClellan, Yes, you're 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 not trying to excuse it, um, because I think that would be necessarily fruitful or useful for army majors either. Mm -hmm. But to complicate it, that's what historians do. Historians provide context. That's Which is what why we everybody do. loves us. Yeah, right. Well, well and the, and the, the it's complicated. Well, and the point that you bring, uh, and the the point that I think you and I both have seen dealing with majors is when you can able to kind of get make them put them in that decision space. And they only have the information that decision maker had, and all of a sudden they suddenly there's that moment of realization, right, where they go, "Oh, I didn't know all this ahead of time." Yeah, and I gotten in. Have you ever gotten so into the moment that you that you get fixated on what's right in front of you and nowhere else because that's your? Th and then all of a sudden they go, "Oh." 
Well, I think the thing for me that, that is so important about physical space, and I think war games can do this to an extent too, um, it's, it's what you're talking about. We have a really hard time explaining to students who grew up on Blue Force Tracker and GPS and the internet what it was yeah. like to command an army of 100,000 men. Yeah. One person doing it. Yeah. And and when we when we read through Joe and Clausewitz and they talk about Kudoy, that sense that it's often mistranslated for the French, it's a French term. It re, it refers to how you look at a battlefield and understand how that will change in time and space. And and being on a battlefield, you understand that. You understand how a Napoleon could look at a space and say, in four days, the Russians will be here, and I will beat them here. And that's absolutely what he would do. That's what he did at Austerlitz. That's what he did in, in many other battles. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the great value of the physical space is getting people to understand what it, what a military genius really is and what the, what the skills of a military genius really are. That's a good point. Now, one thing I'll, I'll throw to you, because what would you... Uh, now, in the Army, we have this thing called a tactical exercise without troops. A beautiful acronym called a TOOT. Uh, because reasons but and where we go out and we just look at any piece of ground and we and we talk through it and then it's typically done with um, with a map exercise prior and then we go out and we just walk it very similar to an actual late 19th century prussian staff ride yes yeah. very much so yeah so how is that any different better or worse than actually going out on to antietam and doing it mm. there um, it's it's a question that 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 interests me. There are there are very different um, methods and pedagogies for using battlefields, historical battlefields, as as classrooms. And I've had this discussion with a number of my colleagues who work um, uh, at other PME institutions. Um, my good friend Chris Stowe, who works at the Marine Corps uh, Command and Staff College, um, he has a very different, a, a very innovative approach to using, um, I don't want to say using battlefields because much of what he does um, with their decision games approach to staff rides really is at the operational level. Very little of it is at the tactical level on the battlefield itself. But they will take a Civil War campaign and essentially do what you mentioned a, a, a moment ago, which is they will go through the possibilities of this campaign at the operational level using the information as it was available to those field army commanders or corps commanders at the time. Um, and in that sense, it's really kind of a historical. I hope I hope they wouldn't mind me calling it that, but, it, but in, in, in a sense, it's purposefully a historical. It's not saddled by the history and by sort of trying to recreate in the student's mind's eye what happened here in 1862 or 1863 or 1805. And they don't have the hindsight that you They don't have, have the hindsight, right, right. That. And in that sense, um, if you are tied to the history, um, which isn't a bad thing, I think, if you are tied to the history and you want to do the sort of staff ride that um, that privileges the the historical integrity of the of, of the of the action of the campaign. Um, a, another pedagogical approach is simply to not prepare your students <laughs> um, to bring them to the battlefield and and basically see their reaction as the battle unfolds in their mind's eye, so that 
instead of going to Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg may not be the best example because you go to Fredericksburg, you're going to see houses. Um, <laughs> Maurice Heights is very, is very, the Maurice Heights itself is well preserved, like the National Cemetery, but the field in front of the stone wall, unfortunately, is long gone. But let's say, let's say um, Gettysburg, you know. If they don't know, um, how the second day of the battle unfolded, but you take them to Seminary Ridge, show them Devil's Den in the distance, show them the round tops, and tell them what we're now going to be doing. They don't know that the Alabamians and Texans and Georgians attacked in that direction and over all of that ground and many of them without water and so forth. They don't know any of that. They haven't done the preparation beforehand. That's a different pedagogical approach and a, and a different take that may yield a completely different experience for the students, but one I think that's nonetheless valuable. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about some of the more controversial aspects of battlefields and, and commemoration and, and, and all of that. Um, first, we, we've talked a lot about Civil War battlefields, yeah. but of course that's not the only war that took place, even on some of the grounds. Sorry to say, about. no. Yeah, so how, how do we as Americans handle commemorating the Civil War versus the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, or even where I'm from, the Mexican War? How, how do those, you know, what's what's the rank order of precedence for preservation and money? Well, certainly never having been to a Mexican War battlefield, I can't speak to that, although I understand... Um, They're mostly uh, in Mexico, so... Yeah, I, I understand Texans probably take that very seriously. Um, boy, in terms of the, the rank order of, of priority, at least in the American psyche... Um, I'd be hard-pressed to think of anything that takes precedence over the American Civil War. I mean, certainly the, the, there's an organization, um, the American Battlefield Trust, that exists to purchase this land and preserve it in perpetuity with the hopes of turning it over to, let's say, the National Park Service or something like that. Um, Civil War battlefields are their bread and butter. You know, they have been for a long time. Revolutionary War battlefields, you know, you think of some of them in the Northeast are, are are either preserved at this point or they're not because they're in the Northeast. And we don't think of the War of 1812. Well, and we don't. I come from Ohio where, you know, we could go up to Putin Bay in the middle of Lake Erie and there's this, you know, enormous, grandiose monument um, really really to American slash Canadian peace, 200 years of American-Canadian peace, but to um, uh, Oliver Hazard Perry's victory up there um, as sort of a... Um, uh, a landmark in the story of American sovereignty and everything. So, um, but I, I think it's I think it's hard to imagine anything supplanting the importance that the Civil War has um, in the American psyche when it comes to sort of preserving and memorializing and interpreting Civil War battlefields. So, uh, kind of a follow-on from that um, within the Civil War itself, there's a unique problem, and I'm not I can't think of examples where it happens anywhere outside of Western Europe where you have situations where you have multiple battlefields on the same site, whether that's <laughs> yes. the Wilderness, Chancellorsville and yep. Fredericksburg, yep. the first and second uh, Manassas. So how does, a, how does a battlefield handle multiple conflicts on the same site? How do you rationalize that space? How do you rationalize that space? Um, I can only speak to how I interpret it or how I utilize it as a professional military educator, and the and the answer is, it presents me with an embarrassment of riches, because I can then decide, 
Um, if I have students at Fort Belvoir who are interested in a Civil War staff ride, I can take them on a staff ride of First Manassas, or I can take them on a staff ride of Second Manassas, and it's a it, it really same is bus trip. yeah exactly exactly it turns out um, it, it costs exactly the same amount so um, or you can do both if you're really enterprising and want to punish the students. I mean, um, I always I, I it, it, in the case of Manassas, I opt for Second Manassas. Far fewer students have any sense of what went on at Second Manassas. The battle is five times bigger, five times costlier. The, the armies that fight at Second Manassas are mature armies that understand how war works. Um, now, arguably, there's really important lessons to First Manassas and understanding sort of that America's first battles, you know, idea of, of um, what happens on the battlefield when you don't know how to fight a battle. But from this standpoint... Yeah, well, yeah, and, and, and things go crazy really fast. Um, but when you have multiple battlefields, um, it presents you with challenges, but it also presents you with an incredible amount of opportunities, and that's just the nature of the beast living in northern Virginia. Like you said, I, I can go to Chancellorsville, and part of the time when we're at Chancellorsville, we're actually on what is traditionally interpreted as the wilderness battlefield from 1864. But by God, Civil War armies fought over it in 1863, too. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're kind of coming back to how we use the battlefield. And yeah. I, I had a question because this is something that I've struggled with. How do you interpret battles that happened over such a wide, uh, a wide array? Antietam, I love Antietam because Antietam occurred basically north to south. Yeah, so like, you like can, a clock almost. Uh, yeah, so, it goes, you can, yeah. so you can uh, start, you can walk, you can start the students in the north, and that's the morning, and that's the morning, and by the afternoon you're at Burnside's Bridge, yeah. and you can wrap it up. But how do you handle uh, things like Second Manassas, where it's all over the battlefield, <laughs> uh, or first, even First Manassas, same thing, or the, God, uh, God help us, the wilderness? Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. where it's all over the sprawling space. How do you kind of break it down for them? I have to make very difficult decisions about what I think is worth visiting and feasible to visit. Um, and in the case of a battlefield like Second Manassas, the primary consideration we have to deal with is the fact that a major intersection at the heart of the battlefield is um, prime, uh, a, a prime spot for afternoon and evening commuters in Northern Virginia, um, where the Sudley Road and Warrenton Turnpike, as they were termed during the Civil War, intersect. If you don't pay attention to that, you're going to get stuck for a half hour at that intersection and lose you know, a good chunk of the afternoon. Um, so it's largely about determining what's feasible, what's, you know, what are you going to get the most, what are you going to get the richest student experience from? Not to harp on Second Manassas too much, but when I take students to Second Manassas, I often take a, a somewhat different approach than what you guys here might take if you were to um, bring students there. Because I have a lot of medical services, doctors, nurses, and so forth, um, I almost always take my students to a field hospital location. And a place like Second Manassas um, offers on National Park Service ground, although it's not necessarily, you know, um, um, it is interpreted. Like there is, there is signage there that indicates it was a field hospital. But it's not, it's not listed on the map as like a field hospital location or something like that. But I'll take students there. I will, because I've done the research, I will show them, um, the units that suffered the casualties that were treated at that field hospital location. I will show them the medical officer who was in charge of that field hospital location, tell them what his background was, show them sort of what the nature of 
the Army's medical profession, such as it existed in the 1860s. And, the and, and, well, and you're, and you're chuckling, but, but it, is, it is a little bit more complex than that. I mean, these guys generally knew what they were doing, and if you fell into the hands of a Civil War surgeon, at least in the Union Army in 1862, um, you were in the hands of somebody who probably knew about as much as there was to know about dealing with hundreds and hundreds of 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 uh, wounded in a mass casualty event. I mean, they were overwhelmed, sure, but it's you can have those conversations at a field hospital location, um, and because they're medical professionals, they understand the terminology. I can read them the case history of a soldier from the Iron Brigade who's wounded and has his leg amputated there, and I can read them from the medical and surgical history of the War of the Rebellion, how the operation proceeded right there on that ground and turn to them and say, how do you pronounce that term? Because I've nev- I never studied anatomy. And they'll know and they'll say, and this is exactly what the operation was like. So it's, it's and same with JAG um, majors that I have. There's a very famous, infamous court-martial that comes out of the Second Manassas Campaign where a major general is court-martialed for... Um, uh, for disobedience of orders and, and bordering on disloyalty to the Union, General Fitzjohn Porter. Um, that's a way to bring in all of these other elements of the battle and the campaign that you might not otherwise consider, but that the battlefield as a classroom allows you to investigate. And you're hitting on something that I think is very interesting is, is that the battlefield is kind of like the Rorschach test, right? Every student yeah. is going to get something yeah. different out of it. So how do you help them? Uh, how do you kind of take all those very disparate opinions? Because you'll have a lawyer, a, mm-hmm. a doctor, an armor officer, maybe, and a logistician. All how do you kind of combine those four different experiences into a cohesive classroom? To kind of wrap up. Well, you do it by being able to uh, seed control of the conversation to the students by by giving them the opportunity to reflect on the spot about what they're seeing and what strikes them about it. Um, because yes, a lawyer is probably going to see something very different from an armor officer. Um, and a logistician may see the same thing as a medical services officer, maybe not. Um, but these are conversations you can have and you have to be willing to allow students to drive the discussion. And that's largely how my staff rides proceed. I will inform them about what happened here and very similar to in how we operate in the classroom in the history curriculum that, that we all teach, um, I'll then ask them, you know, what is what is the, the larger significance here? And that tends to channel into a very, you know, uh, uh, elaborate discussion that can go in any number of, of really rewarding directions. So uh, uh, one last kind of battlefield controversy question. Uh, one of the things that can happen to battlefields, and it's, I would argue it's true of Gettysburg, it is certainly true of pr- probably the most visited battlefield in the world, which is Waterloo, um, which is that they can kind of be turned into theme parks. Mm-hmm. And that can happen in a number of ways. So at Gettysburg, it happened first by the veterans who built all of the monuments. Yes. And then uh, it's, it's, it's happened by, not necessarily commercialization, but just by the accretion of mm. the different you know, things around the battlefield. At Waterloo, it's gone even further because the battlefield essentially doesn't exist anymore. The terrain has been changed. By the Lion Mound and right, other, right. other things. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a giant hill in the middle of the yeah. battlefield. Um, so what? how does a battlefield get like that, first of all? And, and second, how do we manage a battlefield that might be in that condition? Well, it gets like that through through 
the I, I would argue the conscious um, construction of a of a memory of an interpretation of its meaning that 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 m- makes it such a significant event. You know, Waterloo is 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 one of the fifteen decisive battles of the world. I mean, of course, it's going to be um, a theme park, same as Gettysburg. People are going to want to see this spot. Ergo, people are going to need a place to stay. People are going to need a place to eat. People are going to need something to do in the evenings, which may or may not lend itself to ghost tours and everything else that happens. Or casinos. Um, or, or, or casinos. Hopefully not. Um, uh, so that's almost, I hate to say it, but that's almost a measure of how significant a battlefield becomes in the collective psyche, the extent to which it is a theme park. And I... I, I, I guess I would I would caveat that by saying at least battlefields that came into their own as tourist sites in a certain era, a certain era in the late 1800s and early 1900s, perhaps that um, um, that approached not just commemoration, but and certainly not like appreciation, but but visitation to a battlefield in that particular. Way and Gettysburg, as an example, has made tremendous strides in trying to correct that. Mm-hmm. The way we perceive battlefields as visitors, certainly as scholars, uh, but as visitors, um, maybe has changed in the past half century or century. And so, you know, there used to be. Um, there used to be a theme park on the on the backside of Little Round Top back in the late 1800s. That's like a legitimate theme park, you know, with rides and everything. That's gone. There used to be a gas station in the Peach Orchard at Gettysburg. That's gone. Um, they're getting rid of General Pickett's Buffet at Gettysburg. I'm sorry to say for anybody who who grew up like I did going to General Pickett's Buffet, um, reclaimed by the American Battlefield Trust and perhaps one day returned to the Park Service as it was a very important um, uh, sort of end of, of the Confederate line during Pickett's Charge. So these, these um, efforts indicate just how much our, our, in our, our view of the purpose of battlefields as physical spaces um, has changed, and to the credit of organizations like the National Park Service, you would never know it standing in the peach orchard that there was a gas station there. You would never know it. All right, one last question, and this is for everybody, uh, and that is for each of us to say what the favorite battlefield is we visited and why. Dr. Fry, I think we might know your answer, but go ahead. Well, I mean, it, it honestly does change. Like, certainly it used to be Gettysburg, and, and I feel almost like I'm cheating on Gettysburg by choosing anything else, but it changes based on what I'm reading it and, and able to visit. It changes based on... Um, you know, whether I'm interested in working on a research project or not. So, like, I, I went through several years when it was Manassas, uh, and that's why I loved taking students there. And I've been on a real Spotsylvania courthouse kick lately. Um, I, I, I teach an elective at, at Fort Belvoir on Grant's Overland Campaign in 1864. Um, it's sort of the, the, the capstone piece of it is a, a trip to Spotsylvania Courthouse, and there's something that just grabs me about the nature of the battle there, the personalities involved, um, and the pristine, contiguous nature of the battlefield, 
which is really exceptional in Northern Virginia, um, that probably makes it my favorite battlefield. Okay. Dr. Nance? I've got a lot, uh, but uh, probably... pick one. I have to pick one. So even though, uh, this is going to sound odd, but even though I've been in Normandy and France and seen that, in terms of actual just a single battlefield where I can go and appreciate a single event, it's really Antietam. To good, me, good, the, man. good man. To me, that a World War II scholar picking a Civil War battle. But what it comes out to is, is just it's. I like it because it's very easy to. It's very easy to narrate the battle, and to me, it's one of those very few places where I can go and I can look at. I can stand on the ground, and viscerally appreciate how things went down. When you stand on that hillside overlooking Burnside's Bridge, and you realize. Wow, that's actually what they had to do. Uh, you go, wow! It's it's something about that battlefield speaks to me, and it was one of the fir- first staff rides I actually did, mm-hmm. uh, other than Gettysburg. Yeah. Gettysburg is great, but Gettysburg's almost too big in my opinion. So Antietam's just the right size for me, and I like it. Yeah, so I'd say mine is um, unfortunately I'm an 18th century French historian, so almost all my battlefields have been World War. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Nance. So I, I will pick one from America, um, and it is Chalmette, not okay. New Orleans. Yeah. And uh, the reason I like it is it's, it takes a while to drive to, but when you get on the field, you immediately appreciate every important aspect of the battle. You see the tree line. You see how the battlefield funnels the British forces into the American fire. You can see why Jackson put his guns on the the wall that he did. Mm -hmm. The barn is still there. I'm not sure it's the original barn, but it's a barn. So you immediately understand why the forces were arrayed the way they were, and you understand why the battle went the way it went. With the British kind of, you know, you you can see the smoke sitting in the low area and the British kind of getting lost and, and, you know, shot to pieces by these Kentucky riflemen and guns. And I think it's just such an easy battlefield to understand. You know, you don't you don't need a guide. You just look at the terrain, yeah. and you yeah. can tell exactly why the battle went the way it did. Yeah. All right, great. Dr. Fry, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.